We're going to continue the series uh, that I started the last time that I was up here, uh, a couple of weeks back, on getting to know Jesus. And we're going to cover part two of the kind of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ uh, in this sermon here tonight. There are five parts that we're going to walk through. Uh, not all tonight. This is just part two. Uh, but we are going to do a continuation of what we started last time. And if, if you were here, uh, we kind of talked about the beginning of Jesus' life. So we talked about the promise of God throughout the Old Testament, the many prophecies that exist about Jesus, the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise, and that he was born into this earth as the Son of God with the purpose to be the Savior of mankind and to be the King of the eternal kingdom that would never be destroyed. And so we established last time, and we kind of ended with, with talking about the fact that Jesus as a baby was more worshipped and more feared than anyone in the history of mankind. So much so that Herod had all the children two years uh, old and younger in Bethlehem, but not only in Bethlehem, but in the coast there around about Bethlehem, killed because he was trying to get rid of Jesus, this supposed king of Israel. And of course he was worshipped by the wise men, worshipped by the shepherds, worshipped by all those that adored him coming as the savior of mankind. So I want to talk in this part too about Jesus preparing himself for ministry. And we're going to look at a story in Luke chapter 2 of Jesus when he was 12 years old. And then we're going to look at uh, Jesus as a grown man as he prepares to start ministering and teaching people about the kingdom of God. So the first thing that I want to look at is in Luke chapter 2. And I want you to know this evening that Jesus served God even as a child. And I'm going to try to get my remote to work. There we go. Luke chapter 2, verse uh, 40 through 42 says, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. So here we have kind of a skip in time. We don't really know anything about Jesus when he was 6 years old or 8 years old or 10 years old. But at 12, we do get a glimpse of what he was like as a kid. And here he is with his parents taking a journey to Jerusalem. And this was not uncommon. Every year, Joseph and Mary would have taken Jesus as well as their other children to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. So not an uncommon occurrence at all. And so Jesus at 12 years old is traveling with his parents, as many of you I'm sure have done with your parents at one time or another, gone on a road trip, traveled with them. Jesus is doing that common occurrence. It says in verse 43, when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now something that hopefully you did not do to your parents was stay at the place that y'all went and let them leave thinking that you were with them only to find out that you weren't. And that's what happened here as Joseph and Mary get a day's uh, journey down the road. They realize that, Je that Jesus is not there and not with them. It says, but they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. Now they have traveled one day's journey away from Jerusalem and realize that after a day that they may need to locate Jesus. And so they're asking cousins and aunts and uncles and all the family members that they're traveling with. Where is Jesus? Is he with y'all? No, he's not with us. We haven't seen him. So they travel another day's journey back to Jerusalem. So we've now been two days that Jesus, the 12-year-old boy, is just missing. He's MIA. And so they're looking for him frantically, as I'm sure any parent would that's gone two days without their child. 
and they're looking for him. And it says there in verse 46, it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple. Now that three days, we don't know whether that three days means the two days worth of journey plus one day of searching in Jerusalem, or if that means the two days of journeying plus three full days of searching in Jerusalem. But either way, you're between three and five days that these parents have not seen their 12-year-old son. And they finally find him in, I guess, probably the last place they expected to. And he was there in the temple uh, talking with the doctors or the teachers of the old law. It says they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. And so as parents who have not been with their child for three to five days, they're searching frantically for him. They finally search the temple, which is, I guess, the last place they expected to find him. And they walk in and there he is in the center of the room. And you've got all of these educated members of the Jewish community. These are the doctors, the teachers of the old law. These are the people that other people came to and sat at their feet to hear their instruction. And they're asking questions of this 12-year-old boy and are astonished at his understanding and the answers that he's giving them. Now that tells me a little bit something about Jesus at 12 years old. It tells me that Jesus truly was God made flesh. That just as that baby was God made flesh and people worshipped him and feared him because he was God made flesh, even at 12 years old, Jesus was God made flesh. He wasn't just a simple boy. And these teachers of the law, they're astonished at the things that he says. In verse 48 it says, When they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. You know, in our terms, it would go something like, what were you thinking? You had us worried sick. We've been searching for you for three to five days, depending upon how you want to interpret that. We've been searching for you for a long time. What have you been doing? And Jesus answers them. He said to them, how is it that you sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? And I imagine Jesus just calmly looking at them and saying, why, why would you be looking for me? Don't you know I'm doing exactly what I should be doing? I'm taking care of the business of my father. Now Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, of course, was a carpenter. That's not the father that he's talking about. That's not the work, the business that he's talking about. He's talking about his heavenly father. And he's talking about the business of being the son of God, the savior of mankind, the king of an eternal kingdom that would never be destroyed. That's the work Jesus is talking about. He is being about his father's business at 12 years old. It says, and they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. Despite the fact that both Mary and Joseph had been approached by angels to let them know that the Holy Spirit would conceive a child within Mary, that that child would come forth and be the Savior of the world, despite all of the miraculous happenings that has occurred, they still hear this and they go, I don't understand. And probably we would do the same thing. I don't understand. Not like any other 12-year-old boy I've ever seen. It says, and he, in verse 51, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. I want us to recognize one thing from this verse, and that is it says he was subject unto them. You know, you'd think of anybody in the history of mankind, Jesus had a card that he could have always played. I mean, he could have pulled it. Mom, you know I'm the son of God, right? You know, I shouldn't have to do this, or I should be able to do what I want to do. I am the son of God, the savior of mankind, the king of the eternal kingdom, after all. But he never played that card. He was subject to them. He was, in every respect, the type of child, the sinless, perfect, God-made flesh that he was for his entire life. He was that at 12 years old. He was that at 4. He was that at 8. He was that at 16. He was that at 20. He was that at every stage. He was perfect. He was sinless. But we do find something interesting about Jesus in verse 52. It says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor 
with God and man. The reason why this is interesting to me is it says Jesus increased in wisdom. If Jesus was God made flesh, how did he increase in wisdom? Isn't God the fulfillment of all wisdom? Isn't he the source of all wisdom? If Jesus truly is God made flesh, then how could Jesus have increased in something that he already was? And I think the answer is this, and this ties into uh, some, I believe, false doctrines and false teachings that are uh, taught about Jesus sometimes, uh, like the doctrine of adoptionism, uh, which states that Jesus wasn't really God until his baptism, that that's when God descended upon him, and Jesus at all points up leading to that was just a normal person. Well, I think we see in multiple places in Scripture that's not true, and simply in the story of Jesus. In this story we've looked at tonight, we see that that's not true. How could just an ordinary 12-year-old boy have sat in that temple with these educated teachers of the law and been astonishing them with the things that he knew and understood? How would he at 12 years old have a recognition that he was to be about his father's business, his heavenly father, not his earthly father? So even in this story, we can see that that's not true. But I'm going to tell you what I believe that this means. I believe that God... The scriptures say that there's an Old Testament prophecy that talks about uh, Jesus in, in God wanting to experience the fullness of what it was to be human. And as Jesus was developing and growing physically, he was always God made flesh. But as Jesus' physical development progressed, I believe that he, God the Father, allowed more of himself and more of his spirit to fill Jesus as he grew. To the point in which Jesus as an adult, a fully physically developed person, was then able to have the fullness of the Spirit with which he used to do the miracles and the many things that he did. He still had the Spirit of God. He still was God-made flesh all along. But if he had had the fullness of God from the beginning, then that little baby Jesus in the manger would have stood up and started preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But he didn't. He was just a baby and he grew. He wasn't just a baby. He was the Son of God. But he was a physical baby that God allowed to grow and develop over time. And over time, as he physically developed, that wisdom, that spirit that God put in him of himself grew as well until he was finally grown and able to be the fullness of what God intended him to be as the savior of mankind. We think about other scriptures like John chapter 1, talking about Jesus, talking about that false doctrine. We can go to John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 uh, that says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. The word of God, John says, was there from the beginning and helped to create everything. Verse 14 tells us what that word was. You recall? Verse 14 says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of God was Jesus, and John was specifically telling us that Jesus, not the physical manifestation of Jesus that we think of, but Jesus as God has always been. That Jesus is God and always has been God. And as the word of God, the mouthpiece of God, if you will, taking the message of God, that word was always there. That part of God was always there from the beginning. And Jesus, that part of God that came down in physical form, came as the word, the mouthpiece, the message of God to mankind. That was Jesus' purpose, to be the word of God and the message of God. And at 12 years old, he showed glimpses of that. He showed a hint of that. He tried to make his parents understand that that's what he was about, and they didn't understand it because that would have been extremely hard to understand. But Jesus has always been God-made flesh, and at 12 years old, Jesus was serving God. And I just want to encourage you, if you're a young person in the audience tonight, if you're 12 years old, if you're 10 years old, if you're a kid in the audience tonight, serve God like Jesus did at 12 years old. Jesus didn't wait until he was an adult or wait until he was older to say, I'm going to be what God wants me to be. Jesus at 12 years old said, I'm going to do my father's business. Let's do that too. 
and make sure that we're being the person that God has called us to be no matter what age we are. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Now we time jump again to a point where Jesus has grown. And what we find is that Jesus has literally taken on uh, the work of his earthly father to uh, provide a living for himself as he grows older. So Jesus becomes a carpenter, does a lot of carpentry work. I sometimes wonder how profitable that work would have been because I figure Jesus was probably a perfectionist. I mean, he wouldn't have wanted to give low-quality work to anyone. So as a perfectionist, it probably would have taken him a long time to get jobs completed, I'm guessing. So, you know, there were probably clients of his that were like, I just asked for a bookshelf, and it's been two months. But I figure he was probably good at what he did at that carpentry work if people were willing to wait for it. So that's what Jesus did until he was about 30 years old. And then he would start his real work, and that was becoming the Savior and the King of that eternal kingdom. And he would begin his ministry. In Matthew chapter 3... One through three, we see a man named John. This is Jesus' cousin. You'll remember a story as well in Scripture of Elizabeth who is pregnant with John while Mary is pregnant with Jesus. And as they meet there, uh, John leapt in the womb of Elizabeth as Jesus drew near. And so this is that same John that has now grown up. He's the cousin of Jesus and he is known as John the Baptist. And he's going to come and start preaching and preparing the way for Jesus to begin his ministry. So in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He comes just as prophecy said he would. And he starts teaching that the kingdom of God is coming, it's at hand, and that he is preparing the way for the Savior, the Messiah, the King of that eternal kingdom to come. In verse 4, it describes for us what John looked like. It says that the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Now, I imagine this would have been an interesting character to get to listen to and to to watch teach uh, about God, about Jesus coming in the kingdom of God. Uh, They're dressed in his camel's hair and leathern girdle and eating his locusts and wild honey. Interesting guy, but fulfilled a very important Uh, part of the story here leading up to Jesus. And then we have John here, and he's baptizing people uh, in what we would refer to now as John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance, not the same type of baptism that you and I are baptized for today, which is for the repentance of sin, as Acts 2.38 teaches us, or for the remission of sin, rather. Uh, But John baptized people in a baptism of repentance. It was a dedication that they wanted to turn their life around and give it to God in preparation for the Messiah coming. It says, Then they went out, or then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. And then in verse 13 it says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So John is out there, and he's been preaching that the kingdom of heaven is coming. It's at hand. You need to repent, turn to God. People have been being baptized by him. And then shows up Jesus. Jesus is 30 years old at this point. He comes to the river where John is baptizing people. And he says, John, my cousin, I need you to baptize me. And John looks at him and he says, What? You want me to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. Now, I think this gives us an indication that John recognized that Jesus, as the Messiah, as the Son of God, was sinless. 
and had no need to repent. I think this shows us that John's first initial reaction to that was, you have no reason to be baptized. The reason people are being baptized is because they want to turn their life around and give it to God and repent of their sins. You have no sin. Why are you coming asking to be baptized of me? I need to be baptized of you. But Jesus' response to that is that we need to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. And what we find, we'll talk about this kind of a little bit in just a second. But let me get to the rest of this this verse here and then I'm going to come back to that. Uh, Jesus, when he was baptized, something happens. He's baptized by John. John dips him into the water, immerses him, brings him up. And then you see a scene and you know the crowd of people there. They saw something spectacular here. When he comes up out of the water, the heavens opened up above him. The spirit of God descends down like a dove and lights upon him. Now this is why, and there's, this is why you can see the connection here, why some people would think this is when Jesus actually became God, even though that's not what the scripture teaches, it's not what John 1 teaches, it's not what the story in Luke 2 that we already covered teaches, it's not what the fact that he was born of a virgin and prophesied about and all of those things, that's not true, but you can see why people would think that the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. Now I believe that this is that fulfillment of he is ready to begin his ministry and the fullness of God has now come upon him and he is ready to begin and to do what God has called him to do as his son, as that part of himself that is the word, that is the message of God to mankind. What an amazing sight that would have been to see and then to hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This was a marker. This was a moment that said, Jesus is now ready. He is now beginning his ministry. The, the, the thing that I have called him to be, that savior of mankind, that king of the eternal kingdom, This is him. He is starting that now. Uh, 30 years old was also a respected age. 30 years old was when priests could start fulfilling priestly duties. 30 years old was kind of an age that people would respect as he is beginning his ministry, and they would see that. And so I think all of that aligns very nicely. So with the baptism, the, the question comes to mind, why was Jesus baptized? Well, he obviously didn't need to be remitted of sins. He didn't need to have sins forgiven. And I think John even recognized that. So why was Jesus baptized? And I think it's twofold. I think, one, it's for this reason that we just talked about, that it was a marker. It was a setting apart, a saying, I am now beginning the ministry as the Son of God, as the Savior of mankind. But the second is, I think it was an example for you and I. I think that he did that so that you and I could look at the Scripture. And in Mark chapter 16, 15, 16, when he commands to go out and preach the gospel, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, when he himself taught that baptism was the way to get to God and to have salvation, that we would also be able to look at his life and recognize that he provided us an example of that. That he himself, even though he had no sin, he was still subject to God and he still wanted to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill all commands of God, to fulfill the plan of God. And the plan of God for you and I is to be baptized for the remission of our sins. And even though he had no sins to be forgiven of, he still subjected himself to God and did those everything, whether old law or new law that he was teaching, Jesus did everything that he taught that you and I should do. And so I think that's an important element for us to be able to look at and say Jesus was even baptized as an example for us that that's something that we should do. Now, after his baptism, Jesus goes and he is going to be tested or tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. Now, when it says wilderness, don't think forest. Think barren land because that's what it would have been. Inhospitable, barren wasteland. That's where Jesus was. 
Um, the scripture says afterward he hungered. There's no mention in any of the gospels uh, that specifically says people often ask, well, what does it mean that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? What does that actually mean? Well, there's a lot of different theories, but I will tell you that the scripture says that he ate nothing and that he was hungry afterwards. So I think we can, we can boil it down to at least he went without food. Now, some people would make the argument that he went without food during the day and then at six o'clock in the evening that he would have then been able to eat but fasted during the day, the Jewish days. I don't think that that's what the scripture teaches. I think the scripture teaches he fasted and he ate nothing and he was very, very hungry at the end of that 40 days. It says nothing about water though. A lot of people bring up that objection. They say, how could someone go without water for 40 days? And the reality is physically we can't go without water for 40 days. Somebody says, well, he was Jesus. He was God made flesh. He could have gone 40 days without water. That's true, but it kind of would have uh, been hypocritical because he really wouldn't have been suffering if he relied upon his, his Godhead and the strength from God to be able to get through that. The whole point of him fasting was so that he would suffer physically and bring himself to a physically weakened point where when Satan tempted him, he would be extremely tempted to give in, but could still choose to be what God wanted him to be. And so the fact that he was God, I don't think played a part here. I don't think that he used that to be able to survive. I think the fact that the scripture doesn't say anything about him fasting from water means he probably drank water. But he didn't eat for 40 days. And so here we have a Jesus that is very, very hungry, very weakened. He's lost weight. He's skinny. He's starving. And Satan comes to him, and he's going to tempt him in three ways. It says, when the tempter came to him and said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. I wonder why Satan went for that one first. He's just fasted for 40 days. He hadn't eaten anything. Satan says, if you're really the son of God... Make these stones bread and eat them. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You think Jesus was tempted by that? After 40 days of not eating, the scripture specifically tells us afterward he hungered. He was hungry. He would have looked at that and said, You know what? I am God. I do have the power of God. I could turn these stones into bread. But in doing that, he would have been giving into the temptation of Satan, he would have been giving into the lust of the flesh. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us those three categories of sin, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Not of the Father, but is of the world. And that was that lust of the flesh. And Jesus would have wanted that. He would have wanted to turn those into bread and eat them to have fulfillment in his flesh, but he didn't. And he responded and said, man shall not live by bread alone. He says, there's something more important that I'm living for than just food. And that's the word of God. And so Satan tries again a second time. He says, The devil, devil taketh him into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the, of the temple and saith, him, saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. This temptation I see as the pride of life mentioned by John in 1 John 2 verse 16. Satan essentially is challenging him and he's saying, if you're really the son of God, prove it to me. Prove that you're that great. Prove that you're that mighty. Prove that you can jump off of this ledge and not get hurt. Prove it. Because I don't believe it. I don't believe that you're the son of God. I believe that if you jumped, you'd die like anybody else would. So prove it. And that's appealing to pride. But Jesus didn't allow that to sway him. He didn't give in to that pride. Instead, he responded and he said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He said, I'm not going to tempt God that way by jumping and relying on God to save me. I'm going to just obey what God said and I'm not going to give in to that temptation. So he's defeated him twice, but Satan has one more temptation up his sleeve. Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of him 
of them, and he saith unto him, All these things will I give unto thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only thou shalt serve. I see this as that lust of the eyes. All of the wonderful kingdoms, all of the things of the world that Jesus could have looked on and thought, you know, that could all be mine. The lust of the eyes is essentially covetousness. It's looking at those things that we want, that we think that we should have, despite the fact that maybe we shouldn't have it or we've not earned it or they belong to someone else. And Satan says, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world, all of this stuff, if you'll just bow down and go worship me. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm only going to serve God. I'm only going to worship God. I'm not going to worship anybody else. So three times Satan tempts Jesus using those three categories of sin we see in 1 John 2, 16. And three times Jesus responds in Scripture, denies Satan, resists him. And just as the Scripture teaches that Satan will flee from us when we resist him, so Satan uh, fled, get the right word out, from Jesus after Jesus resisted him these three times. It says, the devil leaveth him, and behold, the angels came and ministered unto him. So after 40 days of not eating, after these cruel temptations by Satan, Jesus has now passed every test that Satan has thrown at him. He has proven conclusively, I believe that we can look in Scripture and see, and to all that would have perhaps heard about this, that he has proven conclusively that he is here as the Savior of mankind, as the King of that eternal kingdom, as the Messiah, as the Son of God made flesh. And he is here to serve and to minister to God's people. Now, Jesus, before he begins his ministry, he's going to choose his 12 disciples. In John chapter 1, verse 40, it says, One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which being interpreted, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And I just want us to recognize here, I don't know why I have dots there. I just want us to recognize here in this verse, we talked about Andrew and, and, and Peter. It's because there's a continuation of verse 42. That's why. We talk a lot of times about Andrew and Peter and the importance. I just want to draw this out. This is not chronological in that these were the, this is exactly what happened first. But I want us to, to think about and just remind you the fact that Peter, who we think about as such a major character in the New Testament, Peter, who in Acts chapter 2 preached that gospel sermon, opened the door of the kingdom. 3,000 souls were saved. Peter, who later became an elder, wrote the, the, the books, First and Second Peter. Great character throughout the New Testament. He came and met Jesus because of his brother Andrew. Andrew, who we know very little about. Andrew, who as far as we know, didn't do those spectacular things, didn't preach a sermon and 3,000 souls obeyed the gospel. Maybe he did, but we don't have it recorded. We don't know much about Andrew, but we do know that Andrew met Jesus, heard about Jesus, saw Jesus, said, I believe that he's the Son of God, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, and I'm going and I'm telling my brother and I'm bringing him too. And the rest is history. And I just want us to remember that even those little things that we see maybe as insignificant, Andrew doesn't seem that significant in the, in the New Testament story, he was extremely significant. And even those small little decisions that you and I make, that one person that we decide, you know, I'm going to tell them, or I'm going to invite them to church, or I'm going to try to do a Bible study with them, that one insignificant thing that we don't think a lot about, that one thing could be the difference. And we could bring somebody to Christ. We could change a life. And with that one decision, we could end up changing a multitude of lives if we just start by doing those little things that we know that we can do as Andrew did. And so it's just a powerful part of this story of Jesus choosing his disciples to me. And here we have a listing 
in this next passage in Mark chapter 3, of the 12 that Jesus is going to ordain to walk with him through these three years that he ministers. It says he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach and to have the power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter and James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James. And he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into an house. And so Jesus has passed every test. He showed as a child that he was God made flesh. He showed as a child that he was going to serve God no matter what. As he grew up, even as a carpenter and then getting into his ministry, he was sinless. He was perfect. He was baptized by his cousin John. God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That was that marking point that Jesus' ministry is beginning. He was taken to the wilderness and tempted by Satan, but passed every test, remained faithful to God, and then chose those disciples who were going to walk with him over the next three years. In our next uh, sermon, the next time that I'm up here, we're going to talk about the, the ministry of Jesus, the things that he taught, the miracles that he did, the things that he did during that three-year span of his ministry. But in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, I just want us to recognize something that Jesus says here. It says, Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Jesus came onto the scene, and he said, The time is fulfilled. And if you were an educated Jew at that point, if you were a, a teacher of the law, or even someone that knew the Old Testament law, that knew the prophecies about the Messiah, that were interested in those sorts of things, and there would have been a lot of Jews interested in that, they would have recognized that Jesus was saying the time when all of those Old Testament prophecies, all of those prophecies of old were, were talking about that time is now. It's fulfilled. The prophecy that Daniel made in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 that in the days of these kings, talking about the Roman Empire, the God of heaven would establish a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Jesus is saying, this is it. Pay attention. I'm here. I'm starting my ministry now. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah, the Savior of mankind, the King of that eternal kingdom. And you better come and listen and hear what I have to say because Jesus came as the Word of God, as the mouthpiece of God, bringing God's message to the world. And I hope that that message is something that you've received. Even though we've not talked a lot in this particular sermon about the message that he brings, we're going to talk about that next time. But that message that he brought of redemption and salvation to the world, it was his whole purpose. It was why God, God prophesied and, and told us that Jesus would be here. It was why Jesus was born. It was why at 12 years old Jesus sat in that temple and he astonished the, the masters, the teachers of the law. It was why at 30 years old he was baptized and God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. All of these things, this was Jesus' reason for being, was to bring you salvation, to bring you redemption from your sin. And I want you to know tonight that you do have sin. And that's not me trying to offend you. That's me just simply stating what the scripture says. Scripture says, for all have sinned and, and come short of the glory of God. Isaiah chapter 59 tells us, but our iniquities have separated between us, between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Our iniquity, our sin has separated us from God. Just as we see in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, with their eating of that fruit that God told them not to, separated them from God. You've been separated from God. I've been separated from God. It's the reason Jesus came was to bring us back to him. And if you've not been brought back to him, if you've not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to make tonight the opportunity that you do that. The scriptures are very clear about how you do that, the method of coming to him. The scriptures teach us in John chapter 8, verse 24, that we need to believe in Jesus. It said, I said therefore unto you, ye shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Jesus said that. If you don't believe that I am he, 
you'll die in your sins. You have to be willing to confess that, though. Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're willing to live a life of confession, that doesn't mean just one time of saying, yes, I believe in Jesus. That means a life of saying, yes, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to live for him. And if you're ready to turn your life around and repent, Jesus said in Luke chapter 13 and verse 3, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Repentance means to change. It means to turn around. It's the same thing John was preaching. It's the same thing Jesus came preaching. It's time to change, to turn around, to start living for God and not for yourself. And we've got to be baptized. Baptism is that time when we submit to the operation of God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Allow him to do the work in us, to wash our sins away. Acts 2.38 tells us to repent and to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. If you want your sins forgiven, if you want that gulf to be taken, taken care of and removed, if you want the relationship between you and God restored, that only happens through Jesus. Jesus said, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father except by me. So if we can help you to do that, come to Jesus today. It's the whole reason that he came to earth was to save you.